If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Malachi, to chapter 3, to verse 6. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 is probably a verse that you all know so well, you put it on a t-shirt at home. But there are people still turning to it. So as you turn to it, it says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Why do you think it says, O sons of Jacob, and not O sons of Israel? Yeah, when it refers to them as the sons of Jacob, it means they're walking in disobedience. They're walking in a lack of faith. They're not trusting in God. And that is the theme that we're going to see for the rest of chapter 3. Is this the only place in Scripture that suggests that the Lord does not change? There's a lot. Yeah, trust me, you're about to see them. Start in Hebrews chapter 13. Wait a minute, Wayne, you normally start in the Old Testament. Yeah, but this one I want you to start in the New Testament. Does it really say it in the New Testament as well as the Old? Yes, it does, all over the place. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8. First thing you're going to notice is, hey, this doesn't say anything about God. This says Yeshua the Messiah is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But he is the Lord. He is God. He is the Lord from all eternity. And the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which means what? He's never changed, right? He never has he has not changed now and never will change. Hmm. Go to the book of James, which is just a page or two to the right. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. James chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Whenever an apostle says, do not be deceived, what do they mean? Somebody out there is going to try to deceive you. Don't fall for it. Verse 17 says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is what? No variation or shadow of turning. Meaning he doesn't change. Not only that, there's no little bits of change. There's no shadow of a turn. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Go back to Romans chapter 11. But Wayne, didn't Paul say? Well, let's look and see what Paul said. I hear all kinds of things that Paul said, but when you go to try and find them in the Bible, they aren't there. I wonder why that is. Romans chapter 11, verse 29. Romans chapter 11, verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are what? Irrevocable, irrevocable, however you say it. If God has ordained a people, they remain ordained. If God has chosen a people, they remain chosen. What did we just read in Malachi? I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Did God choose the sons of Israel? He did. Will he change his mind and cast them off forever and say, I'm done with you? Well, isn't that what replacement theology teaches? 
all over Christendom. But that's, not what the Bible but that's not what the Bible teaches. What does the Bible say in that exact point? Go back to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. God gives us a test. Have you all been studying? He gives us a test. How can you tell if God has cast off Israel or not? Yeah, it's in Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 35. Thus says the Lord. Who said it? The Lord said it. Who gives the sun for a light by day. Has anybody ever seen the sun? Do you know it's out there? Do you need any scientific proof? Or do you see it every day? The ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night. Anybody ever go outside at night? Do you see the moon and the stars? Yeah. Who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name as if it wasn't clear already. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord. If the sun, moon, and stars are suddenly gone. And there is nothing in the sky but darkness. Then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. What do you think the odds of that are? Zero. Zero. Not happening. Okay. Back to Numbers chapter 23. Back on topic. Numbers chapter 23. If God does change, then we couldn't put our faith in him. As we said before, what if God decides only to save blondes? Or only those under five foot one. Or those that are over 400 pounds. He could pick anything out of the sky, right? But God does not change. Whom does God choose? Those who put his faith in the Lord. That's whom he chooses. Will that ever change? It will not. Numbers chapter 23 is in the midst of a prophecy. Verse 19 Numbers 23, verse 19, says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. But that word doesn't mean repent. It means to change his mind. Has he said and will he not do? What's the answer to that? No, if God said it, he will carry through with it. Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Again, the answer is no. And verse 20 says, Behold, I've received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. If God commands a blessing, and you curse what God commanded a blessing on, who's in trouble? You are. Yes. How about Psalm 119, verse 89? Bet you know what that verse says before we even get there. Forever, O Lord, your word is, what's that next word? Settled in heaven. Well, well yes, sir, Evans. Um, that um, comment about a different uh, meaning for repent to change the mind there, um, would that relate, I know it's in the Greek rather than the Hebrew, but would that relate to the verse, I happened to have it in my mind before, um, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Yep, are irrevocable, meaning God will never change his mind about them. Yes, they do relate. Yep. Yep. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven, meaning it always has been settled. 
the concept of dispensationalism is that God keeps changing his mind. Boy, he, he tried this first and it didn't work. Now he's got to try something else. Does the scripture suggest that God keeps failing and trying again? It does not. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Go to Matthew. If people would keep the feasts and festivals, then they would be able to see how God does not change. There is an order to everything that God does. And if God says something happens at 3 p.m., what time is it going to happen? 3 p.m. How about 4 or 5? You know, God got it almost right. No. The scripture says the Messiah would be in the ground three days and three nights and arise on the third day. Church teaches, well, it was two days. God was close. Does God do close? God does not do close. Go to Matthew 4.4 4 on the way to Matthew chapter 24. I just have to stop at Matthew 4.4. 4. The words are read if you have a red letter edition. So who spoke them? Messiah. Messiah said that he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. He doesn't change. In verse 4, but he answered and said, it is written. It's written in Deuteronomy chapter 8 is where it's written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If you can live by and trust every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, then can those words change? They cannot. So which words did God speak out of his mouth that you can say, oh, just ignore those? He was just having a bad day. He didn't know what he was talking about. The answer is none of them. So go to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Verse 35. And right now somebody's thinking, I wonder why he didn't stop in Matthew 5. The answer is I wanted to come here first. Because verse 35 says, heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. Did God say that heaven and earth will pass away at the end of the millennial kingdom in Revelation chapter 21? Yes, he did. Will they pass away before that? No, they will not. That phrase, heaven and earth will pass away, should make you think of Matthew chapter 5, shouldn't it? Go back to Matthew chapter 5 and see why it should. Matthew chapter 5. Messiah uses the same illustration in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 18. For assuredly I say to you, does this mean he's going to lie to us? That you can't trust what he's going to say? No. For assuredly means it's absolutely true. I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. He just told us in Matthew 24, 35, it will pass away, but has it yet? How do you know? Because it's still here, right? We're standing on the floor. You can see the sky above is still here. But till heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, that's the jot, that's the Hebrew letter yod. If you hear somebody say yud, that's just the Ashkenazic pronunciation. Yod is Sephardic. It means the same thing. Looks like a little apostrophe. It makes the Y sound. 
or one tittle, that's a piece of a letter, will by no means pass from the law, that's the Torah, till all is fulfilled. That word fulfilled is genitai, and it means until everything prophesied comes to pass, which is at the end of the millennial kingdom at the new heavens and the new earth. So till heaven and earth pass away, until all is fulfilled, that's Hebrew parallelism, is saying the same thing two different ways to make sure we clearly understand what he's saying. What he's saying is, till heaven and earth pass away, every letter and piece of a letter in the Torah still exists. So what if a third of the commandments have been abolished? What would that make Messiah? Either a liar or mistaken. simply mistaken. He simply was in error. In either case, since these are words of prophecy, he would not be the Messiah. So either all the commandments still exist down to the smallest letter and piece of a letter, or the Bible's a book of fiction, and we're in deep trouble. But you know what? The Bible is true. Yeshua is the Messiah. There is one true living God. So verse 19 says, whoever therefore. What does whoever mean? Anybody. What does therefore mean? Because not a piece of a letter will pass from the Torah. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments. I have commentaries that say these commandments don't refer back to the law. They refer to commandments the Messiah hasn't given yet. I can see your faces going, yeah, that doesn't sound right. No. These refers back to the law, verse 18. Teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever doesn't teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because God's word does not change. It's been settled in heaven forever. Go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. Probably the most common comment I get and I don't get a lot of comments anymore. But the most common comment I get is that God changes his mind all the time. You know what verses they give to support it? None. Yeah. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God stands. What's that next word? Forever. What does that mean, the word of our God stands forever? It means it never changes. It never goes away. So if God said, thou shalt not murder, and people go, well, that was 3,500 years ago. It's okay to murder today. Just look at the abortion clinics. Sure, murder is okay. What does the Bible say? No. No. It is not okay. Go to Jeremiah. Well, we went to Jeremiah already. Let's go to Jeremiah 31, 34 anyway. (coughs) If I put it in my notes, you ought to put it in yours. Because we started in verse 35. We didn't do verse 34. Verse 34 is about the millennial kingdom. It's not about today. But it's the time that's coming very soon. Jeremiah 31 verse 34 says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, 
from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So who goes alive into the millennial kingdom? Only people that are saved, only believers. Their sins have been washed away by faith through Messiah's shed blood. Boy, it's a good thing we can trust God, huh? The next verse I want you to look at is in Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66. And you're right, normally I try and take us from one side of the Bible to the other in a nice progressive order. This time I've jumped around because I want you to see it's all over the place. I want you to get a sense just how frequently God refers to this principle. Isaiah 66 verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. When do the new heavens and the new earth, it's actually the renewed heavens and renewed earth, meaning after the sin has been cleansed away, God's not going to put us all in a rock crusher and, and go build a new one. How long will the new heavens and new earth remain? Forever. So shall your descendants, that's referring to Israel, and your name remain. So all those theology people out there saying that God has cast away Israel and replaced them, God says that will never, ever be. Verse 22 says, and verse 23 says, And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. I thought the Sabbath had been abolished. Never will be. Never has been. It will continue for how long? As long as the new heavens and the new earth remain. And who's going to keep the Sabbath? All the Jewish people? It says all flesh, everybody. One of the greatest errors in theology is thinking that God's commandments were only for Israel. Only for the physical descendants of Jacob. People forget that when Israel came out of Egypt, the descendants, the physical descendants of Jacob did not come out by themselves. Go back to Exodus 12. Exodus 12. Exodus 12 is the story of the Passover and how God brought the physical descendants of Jacob out of captivity and in verse 38, it says, A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. A mixed multitude that was huge in number. Are they Jewish? No. They're from all nations of the world. And what else do you see in this very same chapter? Verse 49. One loss shall be for the native born and for the stranger who dwells among you. So in the very same chapter that says a great mixed multitude went out of Egypt with the physical descendants of Jacob. It tells us that the same Torah applies to the native born Israeli and to the Gentile that has been grafted in that great mixed multitude. Who went to Mount Sinai? This whole group. To whom did God speak? The whole group. 
Why did his voice speak in every language of the known world? Because the mixed multitude was from all nations. Why in the upper room in Acts chapter 2, when Peter speaks, does everyone hear in his own language, even though they're from all over the world? I digress. Let's go back to Malachi chapter 3. Verse 7. Yet... What does yet mean? Hmm. From the days of your fathers, meaning from the time you came out of Egypt, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Gone away literally means turned aside. As in, you were set on a path and decided, I'm not going to walk that path. I'm going to pick my own path. I'm going to go my own way. Does that sound like a Fleetwood Mac song, Go Your Own Way? It should be Go God's Way. But, well, they didn't do that version. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, remember, we're in a bunch of questions back to God. Questioning God. Here's number six. But you said, in what way shall we return? All right, let's start breaking this down. Gone away, turn aside, go to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. I have a different view of faith than a lot of theologians do. A lot of theologians think faith is believing that there's a God in heaven. Think back to Mount Sinai. When God came down upon the mountain and the mountain was on fire and it quaked and the trumpet blew, the people were terrified. What were they terrified of? They were terrified that they were going to die. They were terrified of God. Was there any doubt in their minds that God existed? No. Did they hear his voice with their own ears? They heard his voice with their own ears. And yet, let's go to Hebrews chapter 3 and start in verse 7. They were convicted of their own sin, I think, and so hearing that voice put terror in their hearts. It did, it put terror in their hearts, but did they have faith? The answer is no. They were fearful. They knew God existed. They knew that God could open up the earth and swallow them because he did a bunch of them. Remember that golden calf thing? Even knowing that, they lacked faith. Instead of rushing to God, they cowered away from him. Yeah. So let's start in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, which begins, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, as who says? The Holy Spirit. So this is from God. Today, what's that next word? If. If you will hear his voice, which means what? If you will be obedient, if you will obey him out of faith. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Yeah, you know that rebellion there in the wilderness, how they rebelled against God? The Holy Spirit says don't do that. In the day of trial in the wilderness when, where your fathers tested me, they tried me. Therefore, I was, and it says, and they saw my works for 40 years. That's important. For 40 years, they had manna. They had quail, even though they got real sick of the quail. They had water from rocks. 
Their clothes didn't wear out. Even their shoes didn't wear out. They continued to fit after 40 years. How many of you still have the clothes you were wearing 40 years ago? <laughs> yeah, I would have suspected you, but okay. Verse 10, therefore I was angry with that generation and said they always go astray. What? In their heart. They knew intellectually that God exists. They knew intellectually that God can open up the earth and swallow them up and take them out of this world. But their hearts were not after God. To put it in terms of Matthew 15 or Mark 7, they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. It says, and they have not known my ways. God showed them his ways. He explained his ways. When it says they've not known my ways, it means they didn't walk in it. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren. Oh, now Paul's going to make an application to you and me. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Paul tells us right here what causes us to depart from the way that God set for us. Unbelief, a lack of faith. But exhort one another daily while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. What hardened their hearts? Sin. They enjoyed the sin. They didn't want to follow after God and walk in his past because they enjoyed their sin too much. For, what does for mean? Because. We have become partakers of Messiah. What's that next word? If. That word if appears a lot. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end, to the goal, to Messiah's return. Can we make a confession of faith as a child and then turn away from God and live in sin the rest of our lives and say, well, at least I'm going to heaven? That's not what this teaches. Verse 15, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. How many more times is he going to tell us that? Several. Several, yeah. Verse 16 begins four. Four means because. Here's why this is so important. For who having heard, who having heard God's voice from Mount Sinai rebelled? All of them but two, right? All of them rebelled but two through the 40 years of wilderness wandering. It says, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Fortunately, the answer is no, there were two. God always has a remnant. And who were those two? Joshua and Caleb. Joshua was, Caleb was not. Yeah. One of each. Yeah. Verse 17, now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? Wait, I thought this was about faith or not faith. It is. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Did they know there was a God in heaven? Yes, they did. Did they believe there was a God in heaven? Yes, they did. Did they believe God could open up the ground and swallow them up? Yes, they did. Did they obey God? No, they did not. And the scripture says it's because of unbelief, meaning because they lacked faith. If you do not obey God, the scripture says it's because you do not love God. 
because you do not know God because you don't have faith in God. Huh. So if we go back to Malachi 3.7 Yet from the days of your fathers you've gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Is God angry with them because of what their fathers did? No, it's because they didn't want. They didn't repent. They didn't learn the lessons. But they continued in the sin. When it says return to me, that word return is a command. It's a command. What does return to me mean? It means repent. And I'll return to you. That's a promise. So God commands repentance, and if you will do that, then he gives a promise that he will return to you. Says the Lord of hosts, is there an end times element to this? Are you going to tell me that Israel today is not walking in perfect faith and obedience before the Lord? No, they're not. They are not. Is God calling them to return? He is. And if they return, will he return to them? Yes, he will. That's a promise. And God does not change. Think about it for a moment. Look back at verse 6 again. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. What if God threw up his hands and just eliminated all the physical descendants of Jacob? Just let him be destroyed. Don't think about the fact that that would mean God would lie. But what would that have meant as far as the birth of Messiah? Messiah wouldn't have been born. Where would you and I have been? Aren't you glad God doesn't change? God promised that Messiah would come through the children of Israel, through the tribe of Jacob, from David. Where? Is that just in the New Testament? No, it's all over the Old Testament. But you said, here's question number six. In what way shall we return? What does that mean? It means what do we have to repent of? Aren't we perfect? Aren't we sinless? And God's saying, uh, no, you're not. But the first thing he turns to is verse 8. It says, will a man rob God? And the word rob is not correct there. You probably all knew that. In the law, there are many terms for different types of stealing things. What is robbery? Robbery is to take from one's presence by force or fear. Have they terrified God such that they took something from God? No. What the word actually means is to take a spoil. And that's the way it's normally translated in our Old Testament. When Abraham defeated the armies that had taken Lot, he took a spoil. You take a spoil from enemies that you have defeated. So the question is, did you defeat me? Did you defeat God? Are you the victors and now have the right to claim what is rightfully mine? So it's a little worse than Rob, isn't it? It's saying, we are opposed to you, God, and we beat you. 
yeah, come judgment day, let's see how that works out for them. But, using the word rob, because that's the way all our Bibles are translated. Will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me? Here comes question number eight. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In what way have we taken that which is yours? Unlawfully, illegally, wrongfully, inappropriately. And his answer is, in tithes and offerings. Let's talk about tithes and offerings for a minute. In the Bible, tithes and offerings are never money. The streets of the New Jerusalem are paved with gold. God doesn't need your gold. So what God did was, the firstborn of every Jewish family was owed to God, right? But instead of taking the firstborn of every family, God took the Levites instead. And the Levites do the services in God's temple, the sacrifices, the offerings. They teach the people about God. That's what they're supposed to do, teach the Torah. They're supposed to lead the people to God. If they're doing that, then they can't be out in the fields raising food for their families. How do they eat and feed their families? Well, the tribe of Levi is about a tenth of the children of Israel, right? So the other 90% are required to take 10% of what they grow and raise and give it to the Levites who give 10% to the priests. That way, the Levites and the priests can be in the temple leading the services, sacrifices, offerings, etc. to God while the people receive the blessing of the services. So here the priests and the Levites in the temple, the people refuse to bring the tithes and offerings because, hey, they're mine. So let the priests and the Levites go out and earn a living, which means leaving the temple, leaving the services, leaving the sacrifices, not keeping the commandments of God and teaching others. And God says, in that way you have robbed me. I had a right to the 10% of your harvest, and I told you what to do with it, to feed the Levites and the priests so they could minister before me, and you refused to do it. So let's see. Verse 9, you are cursed with a curse. You know what that curse was? Drought. When there's drought, how much do the crops produce? Not so much. How much do the grapevines produce? Not so much. How much do the animals multiply? Not so much. In other words, because you refuse to support the Levites and the priests in the temple so that they cannot do the sacrifices and services as they are supposed to do and to teach you about the Torah, you're cursed. And the more you say, I can't afford to tithe, the more the curse is and the less you have. Does this have anything to do with my passing an offering plate around this service to see how much money you put in it? Nothing at all. Nothing at all. The tithes and offerings were to support the priests and the Levites in the temple so they could be about God's business. So it says, you're cursed with a curse. If you have robbed me, even this whole nation... That's sad. It doesn't mean that it's just a person or two, does it? But as the nation as a whole refused to obey God. 
the nation as a whole is under a curse. Verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. The storehouse was the area in the temple where the food was stored for the Levites and the priests. I bet there's not a single person out there that's heard a preacher say the storehouse is the offering plate in my church, right? I can't tell you how many times I heard that. But that's not at all what this is. Bring the tithes in the storehouse that there may be what? Money in my pocket? No. That there may be food in my house. Let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10, starting in verse 35. Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 35 to 39. Oops, I have a question out there. Let me see what it is and go to meeting land. Gavin says Deuteronomy 31.12 also. Yep, that was true. Okay. Nehemiah 10, starting verse 35, says, And we made ordinances to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of all trees year by year to the house of the Lord. What's the house of the Lord? That's the temple. To bring the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God. That's so they can eat and they can feed their families. To bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine and oil to the priests, to the storerooms of the house of our God. Where? To the storerooms of the house of our God. That's what the storehouse is in Malachi chapter 3. And to bring the tithes of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all our banks. No, all our farming communities. And the priests, the descendant of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up a tenth of the tithes to the house of our God to the rooms of the storehouse. The rooms of the storehouse in the temple. For the children of Israel and the children of Levi shall bring the offering of the grain of the new wine and the oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are, where the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers are, and we will not neglect the house of our God. That was what the people swore. They took an oath to God. They will do this. What does Malachi chapter 3 tell you? But they didn't do it. So back to Malachi 3, verse 10. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this. Meaning, why don't you give it a try and see what happens. Says the Lord of hosts. Is there an end time element of prophecy? Is the temple about to be rebuilt? Will the people refuse to bring the tithes and offerings? Yep. Try me in this, says Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven. The windows of heaven refer to the rains. 
What's the antidote, if you will, to a drought? Rain. When the rains flow, what happens to the crops in the field? They produce bountifully. What happens to the animals that get plenty of food? They reproduce bountifully. And pour out for you such blessing that there will be not enough room to receive it. Meaning your barns and the places where you store the agricultural products, you won't have enough room for all that are produced. You think God meant that promise? He absolutely did. Let me take a guess at what I wrote in my notes. Let's go to Genesis. Chapter 7. Aha. In Malachi 3.10, you saw the phrase, if I, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven, and I said that's the rain. Genesis 7.11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So when the windows of heaven were opened, what fell? Rain. So also at Genesis chapter 8, verse 2. Genesis chapter 8, verse 2. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. What happened when God closed the windows of heaven? The rain stopped falling. Back to Malachi, chapter 3. God says, just try it, just try it. Bring the tithes and offerings to the storehouse so the priests and the Levites can do the services before me and see if I won't send the rain in its season and the crops will be abundant and you won't have enough room to receive it. Verse 11 says, And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, meaning the crops will be plentiful. No insects to eat them, no mold to destroy them. Nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts, and all nations will call you blessed. For you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Verses 11 and 12 say that obedience brings blessings. But obedience takes faith. So put this in your notes. Faith brings obedience, which brings blessings. If there's no obedience, there is no faith. Can anybody suggest a verse that would say that? A little louder? For without faith it's impossible to please God. Where is that? That's in the book of Hebrews. 
Yeah. Let's look at 1 John chapter 2, verses... Three and four. Now by this we know that we know him. To know him is to have faith in him, right? If we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him does not keep his commandments as a liar and the truth is not in him. Which means he doesn't have the faith that he claims to have. He does not have the eternal life that he claims to. Why would I say that? John 17, 3. Let's look at John 17, 3. Another question I get fairly often is, why do you make everybody turn in the Bibles to see the words? And the answer is, I can make stuff up otherwise, right? But if you're putting your eyes on it, you know your Bible says it too. John 17, 3 says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent, that they may know you. And 1 John 2, verses 3 and 4 is, How do we know if we know him? If we know him, we have eternal life. If we don't know him, do we have eternal life? No. Turn back to Malachi chapter 3. We're up to verse 13, which has the eighth question. Verse 13. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. The people have been trash-talking God. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? I mean, what did we do? What did we say? The answer, verse 4, you have said it is useless to serve God. Can anybody think of where we read last night in the scripture where they said that? Go to Jeremiah. Chapter 18, verse 12. And they said, this is hopeless, meaning this is of no use. The next word, so isn't so, cross it out, is because. Because we will walk according to our own plans and we will everyone obey the dictates of his own evil heart. So come back to Malachi 3. They have said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it? That we have kept his ordinance. Meaning how did it make me richer. To follow after God. No no. I'm going to steal from my neighbor. I'm going to have my. The widow neighbor put to death. So I can steal her stuff. I'm going to get rich. That pleases me. You said it's useless to serve God. What profit is it. That we have kept his ordinance. That word useless. Is the Hebrew word shav. Shav, S-H-A-V. More often you say, a Hebrew word shuv means return, repent. So it's a play on words. Repentance, they say, doesn't do me a bit of good. Doesn't enrich me. Doesn't it put gold in my pocket. Doesn't put wine in my cellar. 
And that word means vanity. So is it spelled the same? It's spelled the same in the consonants. Just the vowels are different. So you would only know by context. You would only know by context. True play on words. What profit is it that we've kept his ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? They're saying there is no profit in serving the Lord. What did the Lord just say? If you'll serve me, I'll open up the windows of heaven. The crops will overflow. Your barns can't hold it all. And they're saying what? We don't believe it. We think God's a liar. He won't do it. Verse 15 says, So now we call the proud blessed. Not God does, but we do. We uplift the proud. We uplift those and say they're blessed because they have obtained wealth through illegal, immoral, sinful ways. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Meaning the wicked prosper. So those who serve God, they don't prosper like the wicked do. Let's go back to Psalm 73. Now the prosperity preachers of today say, oh, wait a minute, if you serve God, God will make you filthy rich. If you're not filthy rich, it's because you're not serving God. Is there any truth in that? No. But what these people are forgetting is this life that we're in is how long? 70 years, 80 years. Somebody might live to be 102. Won't be me, but somebody. But it's still a blip in time compared to eternity. When we pass from this life and stand before the Lord in glory, and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Take your mansion in the new Jerusalem where the streets are made of gold, the gates are of solid pearl, the foundations are all kinds of precious stones. And those that he says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, go into the lake of fire. Who's going to be happy for eternity and who's going to wish they'd made a different choice? If there's one thing you can say for sure, is that there will not be an unbeliever in the lake of fire. They just believe too late. The scripture says every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, but you got to do it in this lifetime because it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. Psalm 73. Wayne. Yes, sir. There's a lovely, I think it's Thomas Traherne, but uh, don't quote me, but he turns it all inside out. He said, true values... There's very little gold and diamonds about, therefore they're not worth much. There's an awful lot of trees and beautiful scenery, therefore they're of great value. God has given us a lot of the good things and very little of the things that aren't really important. <laughs> I would have to agree with that. But Psalm 73, I want to read verses 1 to 20. I know that's a lot, but this is something that really spoke to me. Psalm 73, starting in verse 1. Let me let you find it. 
A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So Asaph is saying, I almost left the path of righteousness to go join those who were walking in wickedness because I saw how they were prospering in this world. Verse 4, for there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens. And their tongue walks through the earth. Sounds like Malachi, doesn't it? Where they're talking bad things about God. Therefore his people return here. And waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. Does the scripture say those whom God loves he chastens? Yeah. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end, meaning their judgment. Surely you set them in slippery places, you cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought to desolation as in a moment. They're utterly consumed with terrors. That is, as they're lying on their deathbed thinking about their future, they now wish they had lived different lives. As a dream when one awakes, so Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. When it come judgment day, they will want to trade all their earthly wealth. But it doesn't happen. Jeremiah chapter 5. Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 26 to 31. Asaph is not the only prophet to wonder why the wicked can prosper in this world. Jeremiah 5, verses 26 to 31. For among my people are found wicked men. They lie in wait as one who sets snares. They set a trap. They catch men as a cage is full of birds. So their houses are full of deceit. Therefore they have become great and grown rich. They have grown fat. They're sleek. Yes, they surpass the deeds of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper, and the right of the needy they do not defend. But look at verse 29. Shall I not punish them for these things, says the Lord? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Which means they may prosper now, 
but their end is coming. Their judgment will fall. Verse 30, an astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule by their own power, and my people love to have it so. But what will you do in the end? Meaning when you stand before the Lord in judgment, and he reads from the book of the Torah what you should have done, and then from the book of deeds to say what you did, and then the Lamb's book of life and your name is not there. Can you imagine the horror as you realize for the first time in your life that hell is real and that it burns forever and ever and this is the future that you chose for yourself? I read something recently that really caught my eye. It said essentially, God doesn't send you to hell. You choose to go there by yourself. And it's true. Deuteronomy 30. Through Moses, God says, I set before you today life and good, death and evil. Choose life. But you get to choose. And once you come to judgment day and realize that the Bible is true and that judgment is eternal, can you change your mind? Too late. Jeremiah 12, verses 1 to 2. Jeremiah 12, verses 1 to 2. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. My camera turned off. Let me see if I can turn it back on. Because I wasn't the one who did it. There we are. We're back. The point of Jeremiah chapter 12 is, why doesn't God strike dead the wicked the moment they commit wickedness? Because he wants to give them an opportunity to repent. Why does God show them kindness and goodness in this world? Because the goodness of God does what? Leads men to repentance. I also like the way the Jewish sages put it. The wicked will sometimes have great wealth and prosperity in this life because they have nothing to look forward to in eternity. Mm -hmm. Back to Malachi. Chapter 3, verse 16. Malachi chapter 3 verse 16 says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Those that find him in awe, who obey him, who find him to be the Lord, the master, the one who's deserving of our service. They spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. 
So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. A book of remembrance was written before him. Everything you do for the Lord gets written in this book. Everything you do for the Lord will be remembered come judgment day. Let's go back and start in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Did I happen to look at which word in Hebrew? Remembrance. Remembrance. Which one word was it? It's zikaron. And zikaron is what? Is a remembrance by retelling. Reminds you, at our own egg at Shabbat, why do we always go through and talk about how God created the heavens and the earth and then he rested and set aside the Sabbath? He said to remember it, to retell it. Every Shabbat we retell the story so that it's never forgotten that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and on the seventh day he rested, he set that day apart and said you're to keep that day set apart to be a remembrance of me and what I did. And anytime you see that word remembrance, just think the word zikaron. You see it also in Leviticus chapter 23 about the Feast of Trumpets. It's a memorial, a zikaron, a remembering of what? At the Feast of Trumpets, it's a remembrance of the binding of Isaac. Why would the binding of Isaac be something to be remembered at the Feast of Trumpets? Because it teaches resurrection. Exactly. Good. Go back to Deuteronomy 6. Verses 1 and 2. Deuteronomy 6 verses 1 and 2 reminds us that all of God's commandments, statutes, and judgments are a whole. That you can't pick and choose parts of it. The parts I like, I take. Those I don't like, I throw out. Can't do that. So now this is the commandment. And these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you. So the commandment is a whole, but it's made up of many parts. That you may observe them in the land which you're crossing over to possess. That you may fear the Lord your God. It tells you right here, what is it to fear the Lord your God? Is to observe his commandments, statutes, and judgments. To keep meaning to be obedient to all his statutes and his commandments I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. I often use the illustration, can we just change a commandment if we don't change the number? Can we just say instead of thou shalt not steal, replace it with thou shalt not eat broccoli? We got the same number of commandments. The answer is no. Deuteronomy 12 says what? Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. You can't add to. You can't take away from. But let's set aside. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and say, well, let's go to church on Sunday instead. The Baptist church in Prattville did exactly that. They had a huge copy of the Ten Commandments on the wall. And number four was thou shalt go to church on Sunday. They simply changed the commandment of God to what they wish it had said instead. Is that acceptable? I think when we get to heaven, we will find out the answer is no. 
Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him, and shall take oaths in his name. Are you looking at the Hebrew, Daniel? Tell me what that word serve is in Hebrew. I bet it is too. Yep, it's avad. A-V-A-D. Avad, which is the verb from which you get the word evid, which means slave or servant. To serve him means to obey him. To do his commandments. Not somebody else's commandment. What does Romans chapter 6 verse 16 say? The one that you obey is the one that you serve. So if God said, thou shalt remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and man said, no, 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 at the Council of Laodicea, don't you dare keep God's Sabbath. You're going to do what we tell you instead. If you listen to man over God, it doesn't matter who you're listening to. What did Satan do in the Garden of Eden? God said, don't eat from the tree. Satan said, no, eat from it. All they did was eat what God told them not to. And what did it cause? The death of the entire world. So verse 13, you shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. I can't not do this. Keep a finger in Deuteronomy 6 and go to Isaiah chapter 66. Because I want you to see what that word avad really means. Isaiah 66 verse 14. Isaiah 66, verse 14. When you see this, when you see God defending Jerusalem, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord, which is protection, his benefits, his blessings, shall be known to his servants, those who avod him, those who serve him, those who obey him. The word servant comes from the word avod, to do his work. And his indignation to his enemies. If you're not his evid, you're his enemy. Come judgment day, which do you want to be? His servant. Back to Deuteronomy 6. I told you to keep a finger there. Some of you did. Some of you are on electronic devices and you don't have a way to do that. I'm just tap dancing while you get back there. To Deuteronomy 6, verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes. What portion of them? All of them. To fear the Lord our God for our good always. Are the commandments of God to be a burden upon us? Is it meant to punish us, to make life hard? No, it's meant to be a want. It's meant to be a blessing. It's for our good always. That he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Do you think that preserve us alive means just in this world? No, No, it does not. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. I think I'm correct when I say this is one of Daniel's favorites. Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now Israel, not Jacob, Israel. Those who, by faith, 
have clung to the Lord our God. What does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes as I command you today. What's that next phrase? For your good. God wants to bless you. Does God bless disobedience? No, God blesses obedience. Obedience is an outgrowth of faith. That same chapter, verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him. There again, to be a servant. And to him you hold fast. What's it mean to hold fast? Don't let go. Kind of like the words in John 15 when Messiah said, Abide in me. Be steadfast. Don't let go. Take ghosts in his name. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him. Does that phrase, serve him, make you think of Isaiah 56? The ones that serve him are the ones that come into the kingdom. Go to Isaiah 56, which is talking specifically about Gentiles, non-Jews. Gentiles that are keeping the Sabbath. Hmm. Isaiah 56, starting in verse 6 through verse 8. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him, to avod him, to be obedient to him, and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, just like we saw in Isaiah 66, 14. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain. What's a mountain in prophecy? It's a kingdom. So we're talking about the messianic kingdom. Make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's the temple. Have Gentiles ever been welcomed to bring sacrifices to the temple in the past? No, this is in the future. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer. For whom? All nations. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel says, Yet I will gather him others besides those who are gathered to him. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. You've never noticed in the Hebrew where it says, House of prayer for all nations. Actually, it says, House of prayer for all peoples. Kol Amim, right? Kol Ha'amim, all of the peoples. Yeah. Yep. Everybody, even the ethnic groups. Doesn't have to be a whole nation. It's for everybody. What's an Am? An Am is a people, a person. Would Messiah have died on Calvary's tree if it was just for you? Answer is yes. Take it personal. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 19. The king is required to make a copy of the Torah in his own hand. And it says in verse 19, And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, 
that they may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. He has no excuse to say, I didn't know it said that when he made a copy in his own hand. And when's he supposed to read it? Every day. Deuteronomy 31. Wayne. Yes, Miss Rachel. Was uh, each king supposed to do that? Yep, each and every king. Thank you. Yep. Deuteronomy 31. Let me go back to Gavin's comment. He mentioned Deuteronomy 31, verse 12. And that's where we're going to start here. Deuteronomy 31, verse 12 and verse 13. Every seven years at the Feast of Tabernacles, this is supposed to be done. Zechariah 14, 16, everybody in the world must go up to Jerusalem at which festival? Feast of Tabernacles. What gets read at the Feast of Tabernacles? Right here. Gather the people together, men and women, little ones, and the stranger, that's the Gentile, the non-Jew, who wants to worship God. Who is within your gates is called a ger hasha'ar in Hebrew, a stranger of the gates. That they may fear. Well, it says that they may hear. You have to hear before you can fear. And that's the point. That you may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of this law. The stranger is supposed to observe which of the words? All the words of this law. And that their children who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you crossed the Jordan to possess, which means forever. Is that the only place that says that the commandments are for all people? No. Go to Numbers chapter 15. It's all over the place. Numbers chapter 15. Numbers 15 is the chapter that says, put the seat." On the corner of your garments, the tzitzit that represent the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. In that same chapter, it says in chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. One ordinance shall be for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you. There's the ger hasha'ar. An ordinance forever throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. So can the stranger be eating the pig, shrimp, and lobsters? No. Verse 16, one law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. So the Gentile Christian who's grafted into Israel is the ger hasha'ar. They're the stranger in the gate. Are the commandments for them different? The answer is no. What if they say, ah, I didn't have to follow the law. That's not for me. Come judgment day, what are they going to hear? I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Go to the book of Joshua. When we come to the book of Joshua, Moses is dead. Joshua led the people across the Jordan River into the promised land. Joshua chapter 4, starting in verse 20. This is about the memorial stones. Joshua chapter 4, starting in verse 20. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. 
Gilgal is where you get the word Galilee. It means a circle. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? You shall let your children know, saying, Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land. You realize God did not just part the Red Sea, but he also parted the Jordan River. As soon as the first priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant put a foot in the Jordan, it split in two, and they went through on dry land. Verse 23, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. That all the peoples of the earth may know. Who? All the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. It's to be a teaching to all the Gentile nations of the blessings that come from serving the Lord our God. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. How many times have I said, Israel's the only nation in the world that was blessed enough to have all their sins written in the book for us to read about? Joshua 24, verse 14 says, Now therefore fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth. What's that mean, in sincerity and in truth? Can't you do it half-hearted? No. And put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. What's that word serve mean? It means be obedient to what he tells you. That's where you get the word servant, evid, from avad. Go to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. It's because in Malachi 3.16 it talks about a book of remembrance. So Daniel chapter 12 starting in verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. This is the archangel Michael talking about the tribulation period halfway through at the three and a half year mark. And there shall be time of trouble called Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30 verse 7, such as never was since there was a nation even to, the, excuse me, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered Everyone is found written in the book. That book of remembrance. Who did Malachi say is written in that book of remembrance? For those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. Verses 2 and 3 go on in Daniel 12 to say, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt, the two resurrections. Why does it say many of those? Because some were raised when Messiah came out of the grave, right? Yeah. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. 
So those who turn many to obedience to the Torah will shine like the stars forever and ever. How'd you like that to be your future? Yipper. Go to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20 is going to talk about the book of remembrance. Revelation chapter 20, starting in verse number 11. But Wayne, that's about a bad judgment. Yes, it is. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11, says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. And another book which was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the book. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his what? Works. Then death and Hades were cast like a fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we know who's written in the book of remembrance, who's not written there. Those that are not saved by faith. How does God judge whether you have faith? By your obedience. Mm -hmm. Now, back to Malachi 3 for a moment, because we're going to look at another word in verse 16. For those who fear the Lord, yeah, we're good on that, and who meditate on his name. What does meditate mean? In a biblical sense. Like a cow chewing the cud. That's what it means. Like a cow chewing a cud. Well, that doesn't clarify it as much as I would hope. <laughs> you got to keep bringing it up. But it doesn't just mean to think about. It means it's a participle. It means to continuously esteem and value the name of God. If you make the name of God useless or in vain that's a violation from Exodus chapter 20 so when you think about the name of God think about it with honor with respect as I know each and every one of you will do always so back to Malachi chapter 3 verse 17 well that one goes over here Verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. My question is, who? Who does they refer to? Back to verse 16. Those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine. They belong to the Lord. He claims them. He claims them as his, what? His sheep. Go to John chapter 10. Don't lose your place in Malachi, of course. John chapter 10. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd, 
And I know my sheep and am known by my own. Does the Lord know each and every person that belongs to him? Each and every one. Let's go back to Malachi 3.17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. Lord of hosts, end times prophecy element, yes? Come the time for the rapture and the resurrections. Does God know which goes in which group? Do you think somebody can be up there and mess with the computers and, and move names from one list to another? No, it is not going to happen. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. There's that word serves again. Are you God's servant? Meaning do you obey him? Or are you his enemy? Which means you disobey. If we hadn't already gone to Isaiah 66, 14, we'd be making a trip there right now to see the difference. But we have already. So instead we'll continue with what does this word mean? I'll make them my jewels. Do you see an asterisk in your Bible after the word jewels? I have one in mine. Because the word is in Hebrew, segula, S-apostrophe, G-U-L-L-A-H, segula, and it means a special treasure, which is what my Bible says down there. It literally means special treasure, and that's what it means. You are valuable to God. Let's go to Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. Wayne? Yes, sir. Uh, Segula, treasured possession. Right. I, I came across a, a, a lovely description. Someone talking about uh, on his desk, he had a, a very old, tattered little menu from about 60 years before. Uh -huh. And it came from the restaurant where uh, the night that he proposed to his wife and was accepted. And this was an absolute, it meant, you know, it's such a simple little, uh, you know, tacky bit of paper, but it was, and I thought that captured perfectly the thing you hold on to that has such depth and weight of meaning. And it, that was his example for a secular. I thought Excellent. it was wonderful. I appreciate that, Emmond. Go back to Exodus chapter 19. Where we see Segula before. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a segula, a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. That is the same word that God is using in the book of Malachi chapter 3. And you remember what this is. What's that? And my covenant is the renewed covenant. Right here in Exodus chapter 19 is the giving of the covenant at Mount Sinai. It gets renewed in Jeremiah chapter 31. It's the same thing. 
He says, if you will indeed obey my voice, Shema B'Kolo, or in his case, Koli, because he says my. Kolo means his, because I ain't God. And keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. So in Malachi 3, is God defining Segulah differently? The answer is no. In Exodus 19, he said, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant... In Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name shall be the special treasure. And I will spare them. What's, what does he mean, spare them? Yeah, on judgment day, when God's wrath is poured out, it will not be poured out on his special treasure. As a man spares his own son, does that remind you of scriptures that say we have the power to become the sons of God because of our faith through Messiah Yeshua? Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. Another case where we see the verb or the word in Hebrew segula. Segula. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. What does holy mean? Set apart. What sets us apart to God is our obedience to his commandments. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure, a segulah, above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any other people, for you are the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. Period. No, no period. With those who love him, that's a participle, that is who keep on loving him, and keep, that's also a participle, who keep on keeping, guarding, protecting his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face. Again, the servant loved and blessed. The enemy hated, judged. Verse 11 says, Therefore you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. Then it shall come to pass, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. From the beginning and all through the scripture, God promises his mercy to those who love him and keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 14 verse 2. Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. Again, we see the Hebrew word segula. It says, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. 
You shall not eat any detestable thing. Uh-oh. What's that mean? Nothing unclean. No piggies, shrimps, lobsters, catfish. Possum. Roadkill. Okay, got it. We got it, Wayne. Yeah. Deuteronomy 26. Hey, around our place, there's a lot of armadillos found on the road. Don't eat them either. That's a shellfish. <laughs> Deuteronomy 26. Verse 18. I don't mean to harp at you guys. But come judgment day, I don't want any of you guys to hear, depart from me for I never knew you. You have no idea how much that would break my heart, much less yours. Okay. Deuteronomy 26.18 says, Also today, the Lord has proclaimed you to be his special people, his segula. Just as he promised you that you should keep all his commandments. And that he will set you high above all nations. If you do not keep God's commandments, are you his special people? No. Go to Psalm 135. Psalm 135. Verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, for his special treasure. So which is his special treasure, Jacob or Israel? Israel. God's hope is that all Jacob will become Israel. Back to Malachi chapter 3. Up to verse 18. Verse 18 says, Then, when's then? On the day that I make them my special treasure. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked. Oh, and then look, God tells us how to know which is which through Hebrew parallelism. Between one who serves God, is that the righteous or the wicked? That's the righteous. And one who does not serve him, which is that? That's the wicked. God tells you right here. The righteous are those who serve God. The wicked, those who do not. And the word serve means what? To obey. To do as you're told. What right does God have to tell us what to do? Well, he's God. He's the potter, we're the clay. So the righteous one serves God, the wicked one does not. Let's go to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 7. Psalm 7, verse 9. 
Psalm 7, verse 9. Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just. So which one lives forever? The wicked or the just? Yeah, okay. Which has eternal life? The just. Eternal death, the wicked. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. Can we hide what's truly in our heart from God? We cannot. Let's look at Psalm 11, verse 5. Psalm 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. God bless you. The wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. God bless you. What's the word for violence that's used most often in the Tanakh? Hamas. Hamas. If I was a member of Hamas, I might think about that. Psalm 34, 21. God bless you. Psalm 34, 21. God bless you. Uh-huh. 11, 5. Does that literally say that God hates yep. certain people? Yep. But the word hate means does not hold in the same level of esteem. He is opposed to Hello, not right. hate God like you and I think of the word hate. hate. Right. Okay. I loved. So that's not hate like we say. It's not hate like we think it. It means did not choose. Okay. He did not point them to eternal life. He did not point them to eternal life. Right. Psalm 34, verse 21 says, Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. Which means, come judgment day, what gets you sent off to the lake of fire? Yep, your own wickedness, your own evil. That was Psalm 34, verse 21. Psalm 34, verse 21. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous shall be condemned. So it's their own actions, because God judges according to your works. So you get the judgment that you earned. Psalm 37. Psalm 37, verses 16 to 17. Written by David. Verse 16 says, A little that a righteous man has is better than the riches of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, that is come judgment day, they won't stand. But the Lord upholds the righteous. Psalm 45, verse 7. I'm going to start in verse 6 and read verses 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. In the New Testament, that says that verse is about whom? It's about Messiah. It's about Yeshua. Wayne, yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. We're in Psalm 45. We're going to start in verse 6. But the key verse is 7. Yep. 
So verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. O God, there refers to Yeshua, the Messiah, as quoted in the book of Hebrews. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So does Messiah want us to be righteous or wicked? Righteous. He loves righteousness, not wickedness. Psalm 75. Psalm 75, verse 10. Everybody with me? 75, verse 10. All the horns of the wicked... I will also cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. All I need to know about that verse is which does God want you to be, wicked or righteous? Righteous. Righteous. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 2. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing. That is, there's no eternal value, no matter how much you accumulate the wickedness. But righteousness delivers from death. What kind of death do you think we're talking about there? Eternal death. Yep. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 7. Really? Okay. Same chapter. The memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. Same chapter. Proverbs 10, verse 16. The labor of the righteous leads to life. The wages of the wicked to sin. If the labor of the righteous leads to life, the wages of the wicked that lead to sin, what does sin lead to? Death. Same chapter, verse 25. When the whirlwind passes by, that's Isaiah 66, 14, right? The wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. So when God's judgment comes, the wicked cannot stand, but the righteous will stand eternally. Same chapter, verse 30. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 30. The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not inhabit the earth. Talking about eternal destiny. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. I see the time. We're almost done for today. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 17. I said in my heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked, but there is a time for every purpose. 
and for every work. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 17. Because I may be rushing too fast because time's expiring, we'll just stop here. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, with the last few cross-references on that last verse of chapter 3. And then we'll do Malachi chapter 4, and if time still remains, then we'll start Zephaniah. So next week, we'll finish up the last verse of chapter 3.